0: If we open up to Matthew chapter 8, we briefly discussed this about three or four weeks ago. Well, actually, about two months ago now. Um, isn't it funny how somehow when you start getting older, time changes and does differently? I was talking to someone who said that they had been, I was asking them if they work, they work here at Maddox um, Middle School. And I asked them, I said, well, you might have been there. You might know my wife. You know, that's my connection. That's how I, you know, tie everything in uh, to Jasper is, hey, you may know my wife. You know, the kitchens yeah, yeah. is Derek and Laura and Emily. Usually I start with Emily and Laura because, you know, they're the sweet girls and yeah. maybe they'll leave a good impression. Um, okay. But anyway, she made the point of saying, you know, well, I've been here for 15 years. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, you should. Yeah. You, I mean, Emily would have been I go, oh, wait, no, 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 no. Yeah. No, no. 15 years ago, uh, you know, we were getting out of high school. You know, 15 years ago, um, you know, we were at this point where I have reached where I just keep myself perpetually thinking that I'm 21. And 15 years ago would have put me somewhere in middle school. Don't do the math on me, okay? You know I don't do math. Let's just use paraphrases and averages, all right? Love that better. But, you know, I'm stuck in that mentality, okay, that I'm stuck at 21. And some of y'all are saying, well... And I'm not even going to go there. But um, but yes, it is one of those things where I'm stuck in this mentality of time. And so when you look at that and we're talking about, you know, a couple of months ago, actually, at the nursing home, we kind of mentioned these section of Scripture. Because it's two months ago, you all probably don't remember it. So this will be fresh and new to you. So um, open up to Matthew chapter 8. As you know, we've been going through the book of Matthew. We have been going through chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, the last time we were here, we talked about Matthew chapter 8, and we talked about him coming down off the mountain and starting his ministry in that way. And the first thing he did was take everything he preached for the last three chapters, two chapters, and put them into action. Okay, 5, 6, 7, he preached about what he was expecting, what he said true worship was, what he said true interaction was. Love your neighbors, but also love your enemies, um, That that is the mark of a believer in Jesus Christ, and we've been really hitting hard on the fact that what people perceive us as is directly related to the fact that we have failed to do what Christ told us to do, okay? So people perceive us as bigots because we have not, in a loving and compassionate way, expressed why we believe what we believe, okay? Um, people perceive us as, you know, murderers because, hey, there's this whole crusades thing that we lived through, okay? So there's a lot of this that goes on that that's what people's perception of followers of Jesus Christ are. And what we said we wanted to do was try to get back to doing what Jesus Christ said okay not what the denomination says not what the tradition says not what the practices say what did jesus christ say and how we were supposed to live and so that's what we've been trying to hit on and here in chapter 8 he starts putting this into action okay so in chapter 8, he comes down off the mountain. He goes and he heals the four different uh, people there, four different people groups we talked about, healing the lepers, healing the centurion servant, healing Peter's mother-in-law, and then healing the multitudes. And we kind of hit on the importance of all of those. I do want you to grab how interesting, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are recounting the story of Jesus Christ. They are the gospel, okay, the good news of Jesus Christ, retelling what he did but you do have to kind of take into account and look and see how they retell it in a certain way. And that has meaning. Okay. Yeah. Why mention that he healed a centurion servant? Well, because we were seeing this great example of faith that was not found in Israel. It was found in a Roman general. Okay. Why retell about healing Peter's mother-in-law? Because we wanted to remember that Jesus Christ is concerned with the little things that we didn't that he wanted us to understand that there is no problem too small no person too small that he is not personally intimately involved with that includes you and that includes me okay and then ultimately when we get down to the next section we start seeing what we was as described as the costs of discipleship okay so it's all well and good To say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe that He is the Son of God, I believe in God, Jehovah, I believe in all of these things. It's very much a different thing to actually do it, okay? That is discipleship, okay? Discipleship is the art and practice of being a follower of Jesus Christ. You can be a disciple of many other things, okay? I'm not even going to have to give any kind of too depth of allegory or illustration to say there are many, many disciples in the state of Alabama of something other than Jesus, okay? They profess it, they believe in it, and they live a life that is reflected by it. In fact, there's two different camps of these disciples. One's called Auburn and one's called Alabama, okay? Pure-blooded disciples, okay? Where Saban goes, I'll go anywhere, anywhere, okay? This is just, the discipleship is the art and the practice of following something or someone. So, here when we talk about being disciples of Jesus Christ, there's going to be costs to it, okay? There's going to be some actions that are going to be necessary, all right? And so he gives examples here. He gives a couple of examples here and then one example over in Luke. They both tie together, so we are going to mention both of them. But if you look here in Matthew chapter 8, following with the text that we have been reading from, you look at the end of chapter, or at the end of verse 17. Um, After he has healed the, the multitudes, he goes into chapter 18 and he says, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe, that would be one of those uh jewish teachers jewish um they they were uh not not the necessarily the lawyers but they were another kind of subset of teachers in the sense that they recorded the words of god they were very i mean they're you know again you get these groups of people who follow in this big legalistic kind of grouping in scribes pharisees sadducees lawyers all those are kind of mished together in that okay So here, though, he says a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Okay? And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me. And let the dead bury their dead. Now, the next section of scripture comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 61 and 62. And again, it's the same recounting as the first, where he says, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And then a you know, disciple or scribe asks him the question. But the last section that's not mentioned in Matthew 8 is this. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking backward, is fit for the kingdom of God. So you have these kind of three different examples of, of approaching Jesus in discipleship. So I listed them out in this way. Okay, We just saw the four healings. Now we're going to look at the three examples of discipleship. The first one labeled as the unimpressed, okay? The one who doesn't really take account of everything. He has a kind of glorified or I guess you could say glamorous idea of what it means to follow Christ. Think about surface level dedication, maybe even health, wealth, and prosperity. The second one here I call the unwilling, and he can't make the cut, Okay? Not dedicated to the cause of Christ, when conflict between worldly and earthly responsibilities versus the responsibilities of Christ, and this is embodied in the burial of a family member. And lastly, you have the uncommitted, can't make up his mind. Is it Christ or is it in, or is it the world? And this is embodied by the family that he is leaving behind. Now, what is very interesting and something that should be grabbed out of here really quickly is that the reference that he makes there, that the Son of Man has not a place to lay his head, that Son of Man reference is a very, very powerful statement, okay? That would not have been missed... On a scribe, number one, who was very, very much involved in the law, but number two, would not have been missed on a Jew at that time because that was a phrase that was tied directly to the Messiah, okay? So that's Jesus' way of kind of calling himself the Messiah without calling himself the Messiah, okay? He did that a lot. You'll see a lot of cases where he tries to, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, avoid directly proclaiming himself that way because he knew of the implications that came with it. Some of that was a military implication. The Jews had the idea that the mess, that the Messiah, on his first coming, was going to come back on a horse and was going to kill all the enemies of Jerusalem and were going to reestablish a natural kingdom. Um, they viewed it that way, and so the the... Elevation to the messianic figure would have caused somewhat of an unrest. There was already a lot of unrest at this time. Jesus wasn't coming to reestablish a natural kingdom. He was coming to establish His kingdom, which wasn't going to be taken by sword. But it comes from chapter 7 of Daniel when you see that the Ancient of Days comes and presents a book to the Son of Man, okay, in verse 13. And it talks about that in the end, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancients of Days, and they brought Him near before Him, and there was given Him dominion... And glory and kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. Amen. Okay, so that's the son of man reference. All right. So when Jesus is claiming that title, that's what he's claiming. He is the son of man. The one who would come and establish a kingdom that was everlasting. His dominion would span across the entire world. And then all from every kindred, nation tongue would come and bow before him and worship him. So that's a very important part to grab. And again, it's another thing. You have to have that backstory because then when he says the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head, it leaves you, it leaves you kind of scratching your own head. Right? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The son of man who is going to bring a kingdom that is everlasting, where all nations are going to worship him, doesn't have a place to lay his head. That does not match up with our philosophy as far as what power and dominion should take, right? And it definitely doesn't match up with theirs either. I mean, kings did not have... A lack, okay, of places to lay their heads, right? We, we, we love watching, like, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the movies or the series about Queen Elizabeth and Queen Victoria and all that and watching, like, you know, 1800s, 1900s uh, English stuff because we're kind of geeky like that. But it always fascinates me when they show pictures of, like, Buckingham Palace – And you just see the rooms. I mean, it says room after room after room after room after room. They're just like, my goodness, this place, this is just ridiculous. You know, who needs all this space? Well, why is that there? Well, because that's where the king and the queen lives. I mean, they're deserving of a palace. All right. Here you have this analogy of the son of man who is basically, that is the Messiah. That's the king of kings. And he says, I don't have a place to lay my head. Number one, because this world was not his home, okay? The kingdom he was establishing was not here in a natural sense, and it would not be located in some palace in Jerusalem. But number two, there's an implication behind this that is, that is directly tied to what the young man was asking Jesus. Jesus, I will go with you wherever you go. And Jesus kind of said, oh, really? Where do you think I'm going? You think I'm going to go to Jerusalem? You think I'm going to go stay at the Ritz? You think I've got a palace that I'm going to build? You think you're going to have a room there with me? You think you're going to have all the glory and all the fame? What a glamorous life you're going to live? He said, let me just tell you something, buddy. The son of man, king of kings, doesn't have a place to lay his head it begs us to ask the question, are we willing to go wherever Jesus sends us? How committed are you to this way? What if Jesus was to lead us to a place that we didn't think we wanted to go? What if the place that he's leading us isn't some glamorous place? See, we have this problem with our, especially our American mentality, okay, because of Burger King, all right, you're going to say, how does this tie in, what is the slogan of Burger King, and and, and the church said, have it your way. That is the slogan of Burger King, and that is embedded in our minds. We see it everywhere we go. How many of y'all would like to raise your hands and tell me that at some point in time in your careers, you have come up to people and you've gone, man, this is not Burger King. You cannot have it your way, okay? No, that is not how we do it here. No, you cannot have it your way. There are rules. There's principles, okay? This goes back, I mean, this is like at school. Well, I want to do it this way. Well, that's tough cookies because you don't get it your way. You get it my way, okay? Well, I just thought that, I, I mean, you could see this. This is, is on and on and on. Have it your way mentality. And unfortunately, our discipleship with Jesus Christ has been extremely affected by this. Have it your way. What do you want your discipleship with Jesus Christ to look like? What do you want to do? Because God's not in the business of imposing things on you. He's not going to, I mean, you get to choose and you get to do and he'll make it easy for you. My favorite example of this, and, you know, I I, I would say this to the guy's face anyway, but um, my favorite example of this is someone who was trying to tell me how they just knew. 'Cause we were asking about well, what's your what's your game plan? You know, what you doing? Where you at? Well, I'm in school and I'm getting my bachelor's and I'm getting my master's and then I'm gonna go get my doctorate and all this stuff to so, okay. This young man was talking about how he thought he had a calling to preach too, and I was like, Okay, well, how you how's all that gonna work? How you gonna make all that work out? You know, what if you didn't get your doctorate? Oh, well, I just know that that's what I have to do because God knows that the only way I can get a job in my certain career is to have a doctorate. So I know he knows that that's the way it's got to be because, you know, I'm like, brother, you know, God could be calling you to be a janitor, all right, and you don't need a doctorate for that. The question is not, have it your way, how would you like to have it with the job that you want, and the place that you want, with the career you want, and the family you want, where you want, because God just knows that's what will make me happy. Instead, it's, Lord, thy will be done. I will be happy wherever you place me. All too often, we wonder in our lives, why am I here? Why am I at this place? Me and Brother Brett were discussing this last night because we were discussing about how God had put us in places as nursing students and then as nursing faculty um, at, at, at different places. Just at weird times. And it was just those weird times coincided with people and family members that we were knew very well being in the ICUs where we were at. And there was just, I mean, there's just tie-ins that you're like, I mean, come on. All right, you can flip a coin all day you want to, but that's just that's God working. And so you think, why am I here? How many times have you walked into your office going, Ugh, not another day? Why? Now yeah, that's one of those. Why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I not on a beach in the Bahamas? And the answer to that is because of Hurricane Irma. That's why you don't go to islands, okay? But this is what you go. You know that I, why? Well, I don't want to be here? This is not my job. I want this is what I thought it would be. Well, the habit-your-way mentality really infects our walk with Jesus as well, as well as with this scribe. You get the idea. He was not very impressed, unimpressed. Well, this isn't what I thought it would be, Jesus. This isn't the discipleship I thought it would be. Where's my health, wealth, and prosperity? Let me get, Give me some of that stuff. All right, That's the discipleship I want. Let me walk with you and get my Bentley. That's what I want. Let me walk with you and let me get my mansion and let me be healthy and no illnesses and money in the bank. That's, that's the discipleship I want. And Jesus says, that's not the discipleship I'm offering. The discipleship I'm offering is, I don't have a place to lay my head, so don't think that yours is going to be any easier. Take up your cross and follow me. You know, a cross was not a lazy boy recliner. A cross was not a lovely trip backpacking through Scotland. A cross was not an easy thing to bear. And Jesus said, take it up and follow me. That's the allegory I'm giving you of your discipleship with me. Now come sign up, everybody. (laughs) Up to the front, everybody run up here, sign up. Take up your cross. I love how he tells Paul, Hey Paul, guess what things you're going to have to suffer for my name's sake. Now come sign up, boy. So we don't get it our way. It's not our way. It's not Burger King. The other thing that we look at is also is that when we want to have it our way, we also just seek that nice surface level Discipleship. Don't go too deep. You know, don't get into this whole loving your enemy stuff, the stuff that's really tough that you're going to have to actually labor with and toil with and pray over and fast about. No, none of that. I want 30 minutes to an hour on a Sunday morning and walk out and be able to check my number that says, Yep, I'm a Christian. Don't get too deep. Don't make me have to make any too many sacrifices. I just want really surface level. Don't get too deep. And that's to our detriment, okay? Because here's the thing, the battle, the, the discipleship that we're engaging in is a monumental thing. It is not surface level. We're talking about life and death stuff here. We're not talking about surface level feel-goodism stuff. We're talking about real life or death situations. When you look over in Mark, that's the presentation. That's what we get. You say, oh, that's not, you know, that's not the fuzzy lovey gospel. I mean, that's not what... This is the presentation that Christ gives us. If you look at the end of Mark chapter 14 when he's talking to the 11 and he upbraids them because of their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned that's the language that jesus uses okay so when we talk about this if you want to argue about that what does that mean timely eternal whatever look as i've said it before you've heard it say you get it. And it's not just because i like to say that word damned either way is a bad thing okay whatever or however you want to take it it's not oh well it's timely and therefore it doesn't matter as much no if christ says you're damned that's pretty bad okay And so when he's saying, go preach the gospel, and this is the response that you will see and the consequences and all this, when you look at that, you go, okay, well, this is not feel-goodism. This is not a surface level. This is not just an easy-go-lucky thing. In Acts chapter 3, and this is, again, looking at the consequences and the deliverance and the power of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3 one of my favorite stories when Peter goes to the temple and he finds the man at the gate called Beautiful who was begging of alms and he asked Peter of alms and alms And Peter looked at him and says, I don't have silver, I don't have gold, but what I have I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And he took the man by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength and he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple walking and leaping and praising God, do you think that man was in a life or death situation there? Do you think his life was changed by what just happened? Those are the realities of the ministry of the gospel. Okay, those are the realities of the game, so called that we're playing. In. That is what discipleship should mean to us. That's what we are involved with. It's not something of just feeling good about yourself. It's not about how happy you are. It's not about how fulfilled or fed you feel. That's not what we're involved with. We're involved in real changes in people's lives. Acts chapter 11, when he's talking about Cornelius. Now, we've talked about Cornelius when we went through the. Uh, Book of Acts, and we talked about his story and how unique it is. And man, this guy was crazy in the sense that he's sitting there praying and talking to God. He has, I mean, he's got angels talking to him. I don't know if any of us have had that experience. I know I have not lately. All right. So that is a situation that you're looking at going, wow, I mean, this Cornelius had a really interesting relationship with God. Okay. And in chapter 11, that the occurrence of that takes in chapter 9. In chapter 11, you have. Peter recounting the story to the brothers at Jerusalem saying, Hey guys, God's moved to the Gentiles and we got to get on board. Okay. And in this, when he's describing the scene of what he says about Cornelius, what the way the story went was, is that Cornelius is praying and fasting and giving alms. And as he's doing that, God sends an angel to tell him you need to go send for Peter because he's going to come teach you and tell you all the things you ought to do. All right. Now you would say, well, Why? Cornelius seems like he's in a pretty good situation. I don't know if y'all have had any verbal conversations with angels of God lately, but I have not. So you would think that Cornelius actually kind of has a one-up on faith than us, right? You go, I mean, he looked like he's in a pretty good situation. I mean, he's already doing alms. He's already doing righteousness. He's talking with God around the fireplace with a cup of coffee. And yet God says you need to send for Peter because there's something you need when Peter is recounting this, he says, send men to Joppa. This is verse 13 and 14 of chapter 11 of Acts. Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Now, again, we get too wrapped up sometimes and to sit there going, oh, well, that is a timely salvation or eternal salvation, blah, blah, blah. Here's the point. God said the words were good to save him and his family. So obviously there was a salvation wrapped up in that. And whether it was timely, eternal, or whatever you want to say, being saved in that way is good. Okay? That's what, we're, that's, that's what the gospel does. That's what it's for. That's why God said, you need it, Cornelius. He didn't say, hey, don't worry about it. You're already doing good. You already know about tithing. You're already about giving goods. You're already praying and talking to me. Here, I'm sending you angels. But you need the gospel to save you and your family. So when we're talking about this, this this is discipleship. This is our mission. This is what we're here for. This is the context Of what we are. Remember we talked about in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says you are light and salt. You're not just here to preserve some tradition. We're not just here to make sure we have practice right. We're not just here to make sure we can argue doctrine well. We're here to tell people about Jesus and the gospel. And see it save their lives. That's what we're here for. So when he's talking to them about what we are here to do, we are here to carry forth the gospel, to bring it as the saving agent to the poor, the needy, the refugee, the adulterer, the lost, the lonely, the drug addicted, the depressed, suicidal, the gender and sexually isolated. The gospel is the good news of and for salvation in all of these cases. We've talked about this before when we were talking about with Cornelius and others that What was it it implying by that? And we use the example that if you have a million dollars that someone has put into your bank account, but nobody tells you it's there, guess how you're going to keep living? Like the poor, broke person you were, right? Like the poor, broke person who doesn't know they've got a million dollars over here. They don't have to die poor and broke. They're they're a millionaire, literally. It's in the bank. And people would argue and say, yeah, but they were always a millionaire. Yeah, but they didn't know it. If they don't know it, it's not going to change anything. They will die in their poverty, maybe never being able to purchase the medicine to save their lives or whatever it may be. They will die in their poverty and say, yeah, but they had a million dollars in their bank. Why didn't they use it? Because they didn't know about it. So the same thing with this. When we talk about preaching and teaching and discipling and being light and salt in the world, it's for these purposes to help those who need the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ who need to know that, no, you are not bound in the addiction that you think you are. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. Let it go. Give it up. You have the power. It's Jesus Christ within you. Just like the ending of that song said with, blessed Jesus while in mortal flesh. You know, that I can tell the boldest foe without, that Jesus dwells within. That that knowledge is a power that delivers us from the things that we let trap us in this world. And when you're looking at someone who's trapped in things like addiction or loneliness, or we talk, we don't talk about it a lot things that are like depression and suicidal thoughts. What saves someone from those things? The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saying, "Look, let me tell you, there's more hope." In this world than what you're living with right now. I know you think it's rough. And you think there is no reason for you to continue on living. I'm telling you Jesus said that you were his. Purchased by his blood. And that you are the light and salt of the world. Now get up and let's go. That's your salvation. Deliver you from that depression. By the power of Jesus Christ. Through knowing what he did for you. And that applies for everyone. Poor, needy, lost, lonely. All of that. You know, one of the things that we talked about that nobody likes to talk about when we talk about people that are having issues with gender identity and sexuality identity, when we talk about those, you know, and a lot of times it's one of those subjects that are taboo and you don't want to think about it, and some people are like, well, just get over it, okay? Well, no, it's a real struggle, okay? It is a real life struggle that's not to be marginalized to the side of something that someone is just confused about. No, it's a real issue. Just like someone who is addicted to things on the internet, okay, and someone who is an adulterer. Those are real issues. They are all equal. Guess what? Okay? So those people need to hear the same thing. Your identity is not bound in your gender, nor who you think you love. Your identity is bound in Jesus Christ. And unless you present the gospel in that way to them to say, no, you're, you're banking on the wrong identity. That's why you're struggling with this. That's why you feel like in a minority and isolated because you're not seeing that your identity is in Jesus Christ. So it's presenting it that way, not the Burger King mentality, not having it my way. Presenting it Jesus's way. The second one is the unwilling, and this is the one where he says, "Another of the disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father." But Jesus said unto him, "Follow me, and let the bed, let the dead bury the dead." Okay. If you try to have the bed, dairy the bed, it would be bad. okay? This seems a little bit harsh when you first read it. Like, Jesus, the guy's dad just died. Can you, like, you know, maybe a little ounce of compassion. The um, guy's probably struggling with some emotional things. Can't the guy just go bury his dad before this happens? Jesus is making a point here, and he was not calling necessarily his this man's dad um, some unregenerate Twice damn child of hell or anything. But he was saying this. There is a time when a cut is necessary. Okay? The idea, and again, this kind of gets back to the, I want to have it my way. The other way is, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to be able to claim the benefits of following Jesus Christ without making any sacrifices. I like my life how it is. It's really sweet. I got the things I want. I got the money I want. I got the friends I want. I got the popularity I want. But, you know, I'm kind of inclined. I would like to have that whole Jesus stuff too. But I don't want to give up all of this. Here he uses this example to be embodied in the family and with the Father. And I think that the reason he does that is because that is right there probably one of the harshest cuts you could possibly make. Cutting that family tie that he was labeling here, okay? Now, nowhere in the scriptures does he go through and say, hey, you know what? I want you to abandon your family. I want you to forsake every kind of familial attachment that I have ever put in place, and then that's the only way that you can follow me, okay? Okay? But what he does tell us, and he says this in other places where he will tell them, you know, people think that I have come to brought peace. No, but I've come to brought the sword to divide son against father and father against son and daughter against mother, mother against daughter, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. All these things that he goes through there. And again, he's not saying, hey, I just love splitting up families, you know. But what he is saying is that there is going to come times that even your closest family is going to try to stand in the way of you following Christ. And the answer is not, It comes down to it's either me or them. And who is going to get the cut? So when we're looking here and he's talking about this guy, he says, look, you have to make a choice. It is either the family ties that you have or it's me. And that's just, you know, again, that was just this example. But what he is, is, is hitting at is, is there is no such thing as a halfway committed Christian. Okay? People say, oh, well, they're just, yeah, you know, I'm just kind of halfway on board. No, it's either all or nothing. You cannot be halfway on board. That doesn't work. Jesus even says that. You can't have two masters. You're going to serve one or the other one. You're going to prefer the one over the other. You're going to love the one over the other. You cannot have two masters. It is impossible. He makes this case against the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He says, look, y'all are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're right there in that middle. And unfortunately... Unlike the bath water, okay, this makes me sick, all right? You make me want to vomit. Your lukewarmness makes me want to throw you back up. He says, I wish you were cold, at least I'd know what to do with you then. Little chastisement, little, you know, prodding. Or I wish you were on fire, at least then I would know where you're at. This lukewarm thing doesn't work for me. It's never been commended, it's never been, hey, at least you're halfway on, glass half full, you know. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, it's me or nothing. It's all or nothing. There's no halfway commitment with this. So when we take the idea of making the cut, if you look over in Matthew chapter 19, we have the story of the rich young ruler that everybody is familiar with, right? Everybody knows the story of the rich young ruler. We're not bringing anything new to the table today. The rich young ruler's whole case was, I come before Jesus and I say, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life or may have eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no more murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said unto him, All these things I have kept from my youth up, what do I lack? And Jesus said unto him, If thou will be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Literal camel, literal eye, nigh to impossible. Um, I'm going to go ahead and lay it out there for you. What he is getting at is this. There is a cut that has to be made. There is a cut that has to be made. You cannot serve two masters. One will always dominate your attention. Whether that is money, in this man's case, or whatever it may be, there's always going to be something that's going to draw your attention away from Jesus. So what do we learn from the rich young ruler? Okay? Now, I know a lot of times they like to, the, we love the rich young ruler because people like to flip over to Mark and be like, oh, look, Jesus loved him. And that's why, you know, all this stuff. Well, you're missing the point of the story. Okay? Is the fact that Jesus loves him important? Sure. But that's not why he's telling the story. Okay? He's telling the story because this man is a great example of failure as a disciple, okay? He is a failed disciple. He was not willing to make the cut, okay? So when we say that he is a failed disciple, he was not willing to make the cut. Jesus makes the point that it is extremely hard for those, in this case, who trust in riches, to follow after him. Why? Because they don't want to get rid of it. Because money has this amazing attractional thing. Hey, I want all this money. I've got all this money. Why would I give up all this money? All this money gives me security and comfort and peace. And I love this money. He says, well, it's going to be hard for you to let that go and put all your security, trust, and peace in Jesus Christ. That's why he says it's as hard as trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle. It just really can't be done. It's not saying that there aren't rich people who are children of God who faithfully follow Jesus. It's saying it's a really difficult thing to let go of your attachment to money. And we talked about this a little bit in the teachings when Jesus was teaching in 5, 6, and 7. That the reason is, is because it gives us so much comfort. And it's not that money makes us happy. It's that money makes us feel secure in today's time. If I have money in the bank, isn't that the phrase? I've got money in the bank, I'm happy. Why? Because I feel like if no matter what comes up, I can handle it, okay? If I have a sudden collapse of the market, if I, don't, if I run out of food, gas, whatever, well, I've got money, I can go do it. If the car breaks down, I can get it fixed. If the house burns down, I can get it fixed. All these things that come up when we have money in the bank, we don't fear it. It doesn't bother us. We feel secure, okay? But the problem is, is that that money is fleeting, and as Jesus says in his teachings, you're putting your trust in a bag that's got a hole in it, and ultimately one day it's going to let you down. The only thing that is a sure, steadfast, faithful security is Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Okay. So when money is in play there, then sometimes we are more drawn to thinking, well, if I just had a little more money, if I was just at this income level, then I would be satisfied and I would feel secure and I would be okay. And what Jesus says is, no, seek me first and the kingdom of God, and then all of these other things will be taken care of. So that's why it's hard to put those two together. So Jesus says you have to cut one. One of them has to be cut off in your affections. Unwillingness to lay down everything for the cause of following Jesus will always have us standing on the outside looking in. He's looking at this man who did not enter the kingdom at this point. He did not enjoy the rest in the kingdom. Okay, He was not enjoying fellowship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because he loved his money more. And so when you're talking about this, the idea is that we have to be willing to lay it all down. And secondly, the discipleship is not just theological soundness or right practice. It's about laying aside everything. The mark of the disciple that Jesus goes over and over and over with is this. Lay down your life and take up your cross. Lay down your life and take up my cross. Lay down your life and follow me. That is the example of discipleship we have through every single gospel. Lay it down and come to me. The man that shall lose his life shall find it. And the man that tries to find his life in everything in this world is going to lose it. So here we have that discipleship is not just theological soundness or right practice because this man did what the law taught, he did everything. And I don't, you know, like I don't throw off or throw shade on this guy. Like maybe that he didn't really do what he said, and he was being braggadocious, and really he didn't keep all those things, and he didn't. No, I'm taking him at face value because Jesus doesn't look at him and say, "Well, you dirty, dirty liar! You know that's not the case. You know you didn't keep all the commandments. You know you. Hey, back in 1923, when you were six years old, you did this to your mom directly transgressing that lie. No, you're lying right here. Okay, he doesn't do that. And he did that with the woman at the well, right? Okay, so we know he will call people out. He's not going to just let you slide. Yeah, I know it ain't your husband. (laughs) This is your fifth. Uh, You spoke rightly, all right? Jesus didn't just gloss that over and say, yeah, you know. He had called her out. He doesn't call this man out. This man says, from my youth up, I have kept the commandments. And Jesus says, but one thing you lack. Oh, so you're saying that being theologically and doctrinally and practically Right isn't the end game. Right? Knowing all the dogma, knowing all the theology, having your arguments down, being able to be able to argue this way, that, and the other, that's not the end game because I thought that's what it was. If we just had the doctrine right, we'd be perfect. Jesus says you like one thing, and that one thing is that you have to lay down your life for me. That is discipleship. So is it good to know doctrine? Well, yes. Is it good to know theology? Absolutely. Should you be theologically correct? Absolutely. Because if you're confused about something like the Trinity and think there's multiple gods or that there's not, I mean, if you're confused on some of that stuff, that is always going to breed further issues. But that's not the end game. That's not why we are here. We try to stress the fact that Jesus was not a primitive Baptist, Baptist, free will, whatever. He was not a denominational person. They didn't exist. Okay? Much to their credit and much to our detriment, it didn't exist. That was not what Jesus was about. Jesus did not say one thing you lack. You just aren't Baptist enough. One thing you lack. You have soteriology a little bit off. One thing you lack. You don't know the right form of worship. He said one thing you lack. You will not lay down your life for me. You will not give up the one thing that you hold as your chief affection. And replace it with me. That's what you lack. Take up your cross. And he, again, he didn't just stop with give up your riches. He said give up your riches and what? Follow me. That was the end game, end of the sentence with a period after it. That is the chief commandment. He just knew the one thing that was stopping him from doing that was all of his riches. Why? Because the man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had many riches. Not because he didn't think that he was going to a glamorous place with Jesus. Not because of any other reason he didn't want to give up his riches. So what is the one thing in our life that we're unwilling to give up for the cause of Christ? What is the one thing in our life that we are unwilling to give up for the cause of Christ? Is it our status? Is it our money? Is it our quote-unquote me time? Is it our comfort? Because what we see from this is to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, we must be willing to lay it all aside. And really that act of submission begins... With professing belief in Jesus Christ, repenting and being baptized, that is the first step. That is the first step of I am laying down my life. I am willing to sacrifice everything to follow you, Jesus. And then it continues throughout our whole life. and never stops. And lastly, we have the uncommitted. Don't you like how I kept that whole un thing going? It was really me bothering me. I had to change them around because you know how I am, right? The uncommitted, this is the last one from Luke chapter 9, verses 61 through 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them Pharaoh, which are at my home. And Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this kind of completes these three disciple examples that we have. The last one here is in Luke and here we have a man who is still too attached to the things that he supposedly left behind. And kind of more than that, not just that he's too attached to them, he keeps looking back at them. Probably with a very much of a longing kind of affection. Oh, this is, oh, remember, and and oh, what, oh man, I can't believe I let, oh, and now I can't do this, and, okay. Remember when. I think that's a song, isn't it? Do you remember? If you think about this, we've talked about this, and I know this is like my hobby horse so much so that I think Brother Charles brought it up last week. But remember how I keep talking about the children of Israel? Okay. We talk about them when they got out of Egypt. Right? right. We're going to read it again. I'm going to use the same example, so y'all should have it by now. Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6, he says this, "...and the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish we did eat in Egypt freely." That's a lot. "...the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic." But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. When I also laughed at, now I know this is like ancient times, but come on. Brother, that ain't a menu that would cause me to remember. All right? I can so much forget melons, as we talked about, especially if it's any kind of honeydew or cantaloupe, okay? The leeks are not top of my list. I'm a fan of onions and garlic, but as a side dish. And you ain't going to get me to eat a cucumber. All right? So if you want to change this around and say something like, now this would really get everybody, and I want to hear the amens on this one. I remember the Chick fil A. Now, if that was the one that, that we really had to cut, yeah. I think you'd have an exodus of all exoduses. Everybody'd be going back. Uh, you mean I ain't got no Chick fil A? I got to go, I, I can't do this. But he, you see the remembering they had here. What were they remembering? Isn't it always nice that when you look back and they say hindsight's twenty twenty, or maybe you're looking back with rose-colored glasses? Okay, that kind of a deal. You're looking back and say, oh, we did freely eat of these things. No, you didn't. You were a slave. Yeah. You didn't freely eat of those. You didn't freely do anything. You were in slavery. You were in captivity for 400 years. And for 400 years, God heard your whining about being in slavery. But looking back on it, oh, how great it was. Oh, we just had so much fun. Oh, how freely we got to do all these things. No, you didn't. You were in bondage. You were in slavery. You were killed. You had your firstborns taken and beaten and thrown in rivers at random. That was your life. You had no freedom? Give me a break. But looking back on it, oh, this awful provision that you've given me, Lord, this manna from heaven, okay? Now look, I've eaten some things that I thought might have been that, all right? You know, me and Emily went out to eat at a place um, a couple of weeks ago and they had a bread pudding that I, I'm almost, I'm almost, I think that was the manna, all right? It was close to it. Um, it I definitely got like a hallelujah out of that one. But that was not what they're talking about, okay? This is manna from heaven. God is providing them personally with food that he created for them. And they're looking back going off. I just had some of those onions from Egypt. Oh my, give me a break. Are you kidding me? So let me rephrase this into kind of a modern spiritual example, if you would like that. So this is how it would go. And the men and women who were following Jesus said, who will give us satisfaction? I'm so unhappy. I'm so unfulfilled. My life is meaningless. I remember back in high school, college, before I was married, before kids, I partied, I had fun, life was awesome, I had friends, I was popular, I was the top of my industry, I was free, I was fulfilled, I was happy. And what do I have now that I've been, since I've been following Jesus? All I have is, you know, peace, joy, gentleness, goodness, meekness, salvation. (laughs) Uh, these are the only things that I've got now. Who's going to make me happy again? Who's going to make me feel fulfilled? Who's going to make me satisfied? If I was only back in the days before I sacrificed all this stuff for Jesus and I could go back to being happy In Luke chapter 17 and verse 21 through 19, we have kind of an addition to the statement that Jesus makes about those who are looking back are not worthy for the kingdom of heaven. Here he says, But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom and rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back, Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. What he is making there with that example and what we've talked about on Wednesday night is Lot's wife is used as that example of looking back and a, hey, see what happened? See what you're worthy of? says, instead, we look forward. Paul will say in the book of Philippians 3, in verse 12 through 16, he'll say this, "...not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that that for which also I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be minded that way. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same Looking forward, not backwards. Looking to freedom and salvation from everything and not looking back going, Man, when I was addicted to heroin, life was so much better. When my life was broken down, when I had nowhere to turn, where I was miserable, man, life was great. No, it wasn't. Let me just go ahead and dispel, dispel that myth for you. You were not happy when you were shooting up in the bathroom. No, you were not happy and you didn't find fulfillment when you were childless and able to spend your Saturday evenings bar hopping. No, you did not have fun as a single man chasing women, I promise. And no, you were not better before God and the gospel changed your life. Amen? So quit trying to believe the lie that the devil is telling you your best life is now in the presence of Jesus Christ. So let's serve Him as such, not looking back as if the former things of life were better, but rather looking forward to the continued grace, mercy, love, compassion, peace, and joy that is found in Christ alone. May God bless us to think on those things.